Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen McDonald. Hey everyone, our two-year anniversary is this week. We launched the podcast on February 14th, 2017, so this seemed like a fitting time to ask you how you're liking the podcast. I've set up a quick survey on our site, and I'm asking you to head over and fill it out. I'm curious to know what topics you're interested in, which episode is your favorite, if there are other areas that you'd like us to explore. So please go to our website, gotsciencepodcast.org, and fill out our short survey. So we do like to talk about self-driving cars here on Got Science. We know they're right around the corner, and there's so many questions about how they'll unfold. Our guest today has some really great ideas about that. And stick around after the interview for a special edition of Sidelining Science with Shreya Dervasala. Self-driving cars, or as my scientist colleagues call them, autonomous vehicles, tend to conjure up a lot of fears and a lot of excitement. The fears have to do with relinquishing control of a two-ton mass of metal to a robot. The excitement is about the potential for these cars to transform the way we commute and travel for the better. But one aspect of driverless cars that we don't often talk about is how they give us the opportunity to either reinforce social inequities or try to help solve them. Just like any technology, autonomous vehicles can cause harm that their developers didn't anticipate. Deploying them without thinking strategically and thoughtfully about how they can be used to solve environmental and social problems increases the odds that they'll make those problems worse. Luckily, one of my colleagues spends his days thinking about the unintended consequences of transitioning to driverless cars and has some great ideas about how to achieve equity throughout this transition. Dr. Richard Ezeke is a former chemistry professor and transportation fellow for the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation, and he's currently the Mobility and Equity Kendall Science Fellow here at the Union of Concerned Scientists. I chatted with him recently about the different degrees of autonomy possible in a car, the infrastructure overhaul these vehicles will require, and the equity implications of having no one at the wheel. Richard, welcome to the Got Science podcast. I'm really excited to hear about the work you've been doing for the past year plus on autonomous vehicles and equity. So tell me what's going on. As a Kendo fellow here at the Union of Concerned Scientists, I've been spending the last uh, 18 months looking at how autonomous vehicles are going to affect low-income communities and communities of color here in the D.C. area. Um, we've looked at doing this work through three ways. We first partnered with the transportation consulting firm um, to do a technical analysis on the impacts, potential impacts of AVs on things such as job access by transit and automobile. We've also looked at travel times and we also looked at uh, congested VMT, vehicle miles traveled or total driving, which is a proxy to emissions. We've also uh, planned to do a convening later this February where we're gonna bring in experts and government officials potentially talk about this intersection between autonomous vehicles and access to members of low-income communities and communities of color here in the D.C. metropolitan area. And lastly, we've uh, currently been working on a report that also looks at those same um, indicators, such as job access and emissions, but then looking at it from a more broader perspective, and how does it, how is it going to affect public transit access, which is typically utilized by members of those communities that I've mentioned. And so through ideas that we want to develop a report and then put out some policy recommendations that focus on three things that we want to see. 
We want to see that AVs are going to be shared. We want to see that AVs are going to be powered by electric drives to minimize pollution. And we want to make sure that AVs are going to be working in concert with public transit. What are some of the questions that have been asked about AVs and how the work you're doing is different from what's been attempted before? So the questions that have been mostly asked when it comes to the implementation of autonomous vehicles are, one, when they do get on the roads, if and when they do get on the roads, how are they going to be implemented? Is it going to be a free-for-all where people who can afford them can buy them and then be able to drive where they want? And I think what we want to do at UCS is we want to kind of step back from that way of doing things, right? Where, you know, new technology comes in, people can afford it, buy it. What we want to do is we want to be intentional in terms of making sure that AVs actually help to promote um, better outcomes when it comes to increasing access to jobs and healthcare and housing and other things that need for our members of the community. We want to make sure that we do not add more pollution to the transportation sector, which is the largest generator, which is the sector that generates the most climate change emissions. We want to also make sure that we don't make congestion any worse and hopefully even reduce it by encouraging pooling and multi-passenger multi rides. And lastly, we want to make sure, as I mentioned earlier, that um, those who need transit still have access to a, a solid transit system by making sure that AVs and transit work well together and not work against each other. Can you talk a little about transportation and equity? Sure. Our transportation system has been developed specifically to uh, to move people from the city to the suburbs, right? And what that has happened is that for those people who are typically been underserved, like low-income communities and communities of color, um, the infrastructure has divided their communities, has kept them away from access to the necessary things that they necessarily need in order to live. And therefore, you know, we have this system that, that still exists today that still highlights these divides, right? And what we desire as a society that wants to provide access for all um, that's it is, it, that's our mission, of course, which I think personally it should be, is that we want to make sure that our, our transportation system, which helps us to get from our homes to our jobs, our homes to our healthcare, to our parks, to our education, that that system provides access for all, no matter um, your income level, your gender, your race, whatever. Tell me a little bit about the methodology and the actual project. What was the modeling that you did, and how did you conduct that research? So we worked as we work with a transportation consulting company called Fair and Peers. Um, they have done a similar analysis in other uh, metropolitan areas, including the Puget Sound area in Atlanta. What they did is they worked with the um, local metropolitan planning organization. For those who don't know, a metropolitan planning organization is an agency that is established by is established by law for areas that have 50,000 people or more. They are required to develop long-range transportation plans that go out to 25 to 30 years in advance of the present with the idea of looking at how their transportation system in the area is gonna change over that time. So what we did is, together is that we took the model that designs and shows how transportation is gonna change in the next 30 years for this area those same MPOs are also look to an environmental justice analysis that analyzes how typically underserved communities, for example, low-income communities 
and communities of color, they have to do those analysis as well. And so we took their analysis that they did and combined that with the model, made some assumptions about uh, how ABs would behave, such as more capacity on the highways, you know, no need for parking, more than one um, rider in a, in a vehicle. And we took various, um, various assumptions and then we used that, we ran that model again and we looked at specifically the outputs, including job access from by transit and autos within a 45 minute commute. We looked at travel times. We looked at what we call mode share or the percentage of, percentage of people who use a specific transportation mode. And then we looked at what we call congested vehicle miles travel, which, which is basically the amount of miles driven on average in, in a congested mode. And so we looked at those factors and put that model and use that model and then did some analysis and got the results that we got to show like, you know, that transit access, um, need, you need to have ample transit in order to have tra good transit access. ABs, may, especially in a pooling method, would increase the access to jobs. And that in those areas that are typically have high populations of low-income communities and communities of color, um, they are gonna be more exposed to higher pollution uh, levels with these cars because they're going to have more driven miles. So that we, that in that sense, we want to encourage the electrification of these vehicles to make sure that they're not going to have be more exposed to uh, dangerous pollutants. So what's the role of local governments here? So our model shows that if, you know, we need to make sure we have uh, shared um, public transit to be supported and electrification of these vehicles. And that's only going to happen if we have intention to get to those policies. And that's gonna be done at the local level. And if that does not happen, if we don't have intentions from the local, our local leaders to get to this paradigm of shared electric support of public transit, then we're going to see less access to jobs. We're gonna see more pollution. We're gonna see more congestion. We're gonna see reduced, a reduced function of mass transit. And that especially affects those communities of color and low-income communities who are often dependent on transit. And they're going to find that their access is going to be severely curtailed if we do not, if we're not intentional in making sure ABs have helped them to get to their jobs. We'll be back in a minute with the second half of our interview. The Got Science Podcast is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. More at gotsciencepodcast.org which also happens to be where you can find my survey. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, PRX, SoundCloud, and many more places where you can download podcasts. Now let's get back to our interview. Let's talk about some of the recommendations. You mentioned adapting street design. What is that? That's a great question, Colleen. Uh, when we talk about adapting street design, uh, one of the current issues when it comes to um, specifically ride share is we talk about curb space, right? So if you right now, if you call for a Lyft or an Uber, you pick up, you get picked up, you get dropped off somewhere in the city. There's no space. There's no like inset in the roads to drop you off. So what happens is as you're seeing a many more Lyfts and Ubers drive around in the city, they may cause traffic backups um, because there's so many cars, you know, trying to drive through. Yes, it's they, always awkward trying to figure out right. where should I stand before I right. call this lift. Exactly. Or, or when a lift or Uber drops you off, you know, where is it going to 
park itself. And usually that happens to be, you know, right in the middle of one lane. And so if you have people coming up on that one lane, the car stops, it causes backups. And then of course that reverberates throughout the entire system. So that's one way we talk about adaptive street design. Uh, of course, we talk about you know, repainting our roads. You know, many times these AVs rely on cameras and rely on cameras to see the road, the lines on the road. And that allows them to stay in the lanes, that allows them to know when to make a curve. And right now, you have a very uneven application, you know, because these roads have been used many times. Cities and departments of transportation don't repaint them. So you need to spruce them up with right. a little fresh paint. Exactly. Because if a car can't see the lines, then, you know, how does it know it's going to need to stay in the lane? So, But what would the car do? Mm-hmm. Let's say the... The AV is driving up, and then suddenly the lines on the road aren't there. What right. will the AV do? Yeah, so there's multiple options that AV can do. Now, to be on the safe side, if the AV is not able to see the lines, it may just stop. It may just be like, okay, I'm not capable of driving safely because I cannot see the lines, so I'm just going to stop and you know, either give the control back to the driver or you know, I can not drive at all, right? Now, there's also where the AV may be in communication with the car in front of it, especially if it's in like um, some traffic. It might just say, well, if I can't see the lines, maybe I can at least see the car in front of me and also the cars beside me and the car behind me and use those cameras to paint an image of what is around me right now and then use that those images every second or every millisecond it generates those images to align itself and drive. So they may do that as well. So that's probably a couple of ways that AV could still drive, you know, is communicating with the other cars. But to be safe, it may just say, you know what, if I can't see the lines, if I don't feel confident in my abilities to stay in the lane, then I'm not going to drive at all. So this raises another question. Is there, this is in air quotes, Mm-hmm. Is there a driver in the car, or is the car completely empty? Right. What the car companies like Google, like Waymo, and Ford, and GM are looking to do is to build what we call level four or five cars. These are completely autonomous, right? So depending on their definition of what autonomous is, you may not have a steering wheel. You may not have a braking pad that's completely controlled by a computer, right? So these cars don't have any of the standard equipment that you see in your regular car today. The computer is going to be able to control braking, it's going to control steering, it's going to be able to control speed, um, it's going to be able to turn by itself, back by itself. So tell me, um, another one of the policy recommendations was to ensure pooled rides benefit all communities. And I noticed in here that it, it mentions that different communities have different needs or preferences and mm-hmm. ways of doing business. So mm-hmm. can you tell us a little, can you sort of unpack that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So when we talk about different communities, we want to make sure that people who have been underserved by the transportation system get access to and through Thomas vehicles. One example we talk about is uh, senior citizens, right? Many senior citizens are unable to drive a car, and they may live in um, assisted living homes if they want to get to, um, you know, grocery store, if they want to get to their medical appointments. You know, they have to either call a right assistance service, um, like a metro access for here in D.C., which could, and that could take a lot of time just calling a car and you have to call in advance. You know, you, it may take 45 minutes just to get there. And then, you know, you may be riding with other people and you may not get to your destination in time. So it adds a lot more time. So we want AVs may potentially, could potentially help somebody like that to say, okay, I can just call a, an automated vehicle 
it's going to come right to my door. I can walk into it. I can drive. I can sit myself into it. It's going to take me directly to where I need to go, without the time delay. And of course, I'm not driving it. So you know, if I'm impaired or some form of fashion because of my age, I can still get around. Uh, we look at uh, the disabled community again. You know, the current transportation system doesn't really help help them well. You know, um, if you're trying to get into a car, it's much more difficult for them to do so. Maybe the autonomous vehicles, especially if we mandate that they have some sort of mechanism that will allow people who are in a wheelchair or have some sort of, you know, a physical ailment to be able to access them, that could provide an opportunity for them to uh, get around much more easily compared to what's, you know, what we have today. And we also talk about uh, low-income communities. We find that especially in many low-income communities um, that are, of course, also have very high concentrations of people from communities of color, they either can't afford a car or they and if they don't can't afford a car, they're very dependent on public transit, right? That public transit, you know, depending on the systems, may not be able to get to where they are very efficiently. You know, sometimes you have headways, or headways meaning the times between buses and or trains can be upwards of an hour, especially for late night. And many of these people in these communities, you know, have night jobs where the public transit system doesn't run at that time or it runs very, you know, inefficiently. So with the Thomas vehicles, you can say, well, if I can call a, call up a car, it's going to be able to pick me up and take me to my job. It's going to pick me right from my where I am right now. It's going to take me to my job at late night, or it's depending on the cost. You know, people are saying that the cost per mile may be as low as thirty cents, which can be comparable to current cars today. And so, if I can call up a car at that cost. It's not going to be expensive, or at least can be within my budget. Right, and it budget. can come to your door, take right. you to work. If you're working, as you said, a night shift in the yes. middle of the night, it will come right. Yes, exactly. And pick you up right where you are. Mm-hmm. So one other um, policy recommendation that I just wanted to ask you about, just mm-hmm. for clarification. Another one of them is enhance first and last mile connections and smart growth. So right. what is what is that? So when we talk about first mile and last mile. That's basically the gap between public transit stations, whether it's a commuter train or subway station, and a person's home, right? And so what we talk about smart growth being, you know, we want people to be live closer to public transit so they can issue their cars and walk to train stations, walk to the bus, and then take the public transit around, right? But research has shown that um, anywhere any distance longer than a half a mile to a mile is not walkable for a lot of people, right? And so over a mile, you're going to get people driving around to get to transportation stations. Less than maybe a half a mile, people may start walking, right? But there's that gap. So what autonomous vehicles could do is that instead of having to walk a mile or longer to get to your public transportation, if you can't afford to live close to public transportation, then the car, or in addition, public transit, because most of the public transit has big buses and they can't get into the neighborhoods to pick you up and take you out of neighborhoods to the train station. Autonomous vehicles may be able to fill that gap where if you live in that bubble, that, that zone, you're too far to walk, but you're too close to drive. Then the AV could be the one to actually pick you up and take you to the station. So when we call it the first mile, that's like the first mile is more like, you know, going from your home to the train station. And then the last mile is like going from a train station to your mm-hmm. final destination, whether it's work, hospital, grocery store, all that. So AVs could maybe fill in that gap 
and serve more as like you know shuttles picking people up in the neighborhoods within that mile and taking to the train station and then shuttling people taking people from the train station to the destinations of their interest well richard thanks so much for joining me i personally am looking forward to a future with autonomous vehicles Mm -hmm. i love the idea of getting into a car Uh, i'll gladly share it with other people and just to not have to think about any of the normal traffic Mm -hmm. annoyances that you have to think about and just read a book i think it sounds great Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and i think say it it could it's definitely has potential for to transform the system in a very positive way um and i think the the parting um points i'd like to say is that as i mentioned it, it could really help our transportation system in a positive way if it's implemented in the right way. And history has shown that with our transportation system, there's inherent inequities. People, you know, transportation has been used to divide communities, it's been used to shut people out, it's been used to, you know, to make classism even worse, right? And so we have to really change our mindset when it comes to how our transportation system is going to be moving forward. ABs can play a part in making sure that we make the transportation system more inclusive for everybody. So no matter where you are in the income, gender, race spectrum, you have access to a ride to get where you need to go in a reasonable amount of time. ABs can do that, but we have to make a commitment to get to that point. Sounds like a good future. I like it. I agree. (laughs) I agree. You're welcome. Thank you. It's time for a special edition of Sidelining Science. It's been one week since the State of the Union address from President Trump, and we're still processing what we heard, or rather, what we didn't hear. Not a word about our federal scientific enterprise, still reeling from the government shutdown. Not a word about the climate crisis. Not a word about making us safer from nuclear war. We're not surprised, but we are taking the opportunity to think about what would be on our wish list for a State of the Science address. Our Shreya Durasala takes the podium. Thank you for listening. The state of the science is meh? A UCS report released in late January on science in the Trump administration during these first two years documented 80 clear and harmful attacks on science. And that report is already out of date because days later, the EPA stacked its science advisory boards with more industry cronies than independent scientists. So that's 81 attacks. Half of the senior science positions in government are still vacant two years in. Many senior scientists have left their federal agencies in the last two years, and few new scientists are being hired. Some agencies have been hollowed out to the point where they can no longer do the scientific work needed to protect and serve the public. The good news is, The science community and people who care about science have mobilized and pushed back on some of the most egregious attacks. We have defeated bad nominees in some cases. We have pushed back on bad proposals and through the courts stopped some harmful actions. The energy in the community to stay engaged is high, and with the new Congress comes real opportunity for greater accountability for this administration. So with that fighting spirit, Here's what President Trump should have said last week, and how UCS will be working for that alternate state of science in the coming year. Item 1. President Trump and his appointed agency heads have cut down public protections that we all depend on for our health and safety, like air and water pollution regulations, regulations on toxic contamination, and worker safety. 
These attacks come at public expense with poorer communities and communities of color bearing the worst brunt. That all needs to stop right now. With a new Congress in place, we can call on our elected officials to hold the Trump administration accountable. Item two, we really need to reduce carbon pollution in order to avoid catastrophic climate change impacts. We're talking life-threatening heat waves, the loss of millions of homes to rising seas, and extreme weather like the polar vortex and killer storms. Climate change is already affecting all of us. Our future depends on the country getting deadly serious about the climate crisis right now. And we'll do our part to keep educating folks about the consequences ahead. Item three. Today, coal produces only a quarter of our nation's electricity, down from 50% about a dozen years ago. That's good news, but we still need faster progress and more ambitious policies to keep cutting emissions. The Trump administration is instead doing everything it can think of to try and prop up the failing coal industry. It's not working. And they're wasting precious time that could be better spent on ramping up clean energy across the country. UCS will be working for sensible energy policies that support renewables. Item four. Transportation is the largest source of carbon pollution in the United States, making it more important than ever to increase the fuel efficiency of our cars and trucks. The president and his administration, however, are trying to roll back the fuel efficiency standards that have saved us money and saved the planet tons of carbon emissions. This rollback would be expensive for drivers and disastrous for climate change. That's why we're prepared and ready to keep fighting for these standards. Item five. Companies like ExxonMobil and Chevron have spent decades and millions of dollars manufacturing doubt about climate science and lobbying to block climate policies. Meanwhile, regular people living through climate change are currently paying for it with their tax dollars. We're going to keep exposing these companies when they act in bad faith and create a path for them to be held accountable. Item six. Regulatory rollbacks also affect the food we eat from farm to fork. Undermining the USDA's research agencies, catering to the chemical industry, and waging a disastrous trade war threatens the future for farmers and all of us who eat food. UCS is committed to food policies that support public health, ensure that everyone gets the nutrition they need, and reduce the impact of agriculture on the environment. And finally, item seven. Spending over a trillion dollars to rebuild the entire nuclear arsenal while walking away from a successful nuclear arms agreement with Russia is a very bad idea. Nuclear weapons still pose an existential threat to our nation and the world. We should be doing all we can to reduce that threat. That's been a part of the UCS mission since we were founded 50 years ago, and it is just as important to us today. There's a lot to fight back against in the year ahead and a lot of progress we can make. Stay tuned and stay engaged. It's my hope and all of my colleagues here that soon we'll be able to say the state of the science is strong. Well, that's it for this episode of the Got Science podcast. Got Science is made possible by the 130,000 members of UCS and especially our Partners for the Earth, the 12,000 supporters who make monthly contributions to Stand Up for Science. Learn more at ucsusa.org partners. 
Special thanks to Dr. Richard Azike. I'd also like to thank Dr. Andrew Rosenberg, Shreya Dervasala, and Pamela Wirth for crafting the State of Science piece. Editing by Brian Middleton and Omari Spears. Music by Brian Middleton. Research and writing by Pamela Wirth. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. And at the risk of sounding like a broken record, please fill out my survey at gotsciencepodcast.org. Thanks, and see you next time.